This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the website that brings readers and writers together to make great books, and the sponsor of Backlisted. Today we're coming to you from the Durham Book Festival, an annual event that uh, first started in 1990, which means it's one of the oldest of the UK's book festivals. Mm-hmm. The events this year, there are many authors performing, David Baddiel, Michael Mulpergo, Pat Barker, Catherine Williams, and it was also, last night, was the, the Durham Book Festival is now the place where the, the Gordon Byrne Prize, I think one of the most interesting of the UK's literary prizes, uh, was launched, and last night it was, uh, the winner was announced. Andy. I'm Andy Miller, I'm the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and I am the reader-in-residence at the Durham Book Festival this year. The best thing about reader-in-residence is people keep saying to me, what, what is that? <laughs> um, um, we're, we're making it up as we go along, but basically I'm an ambassador for all the authors who either couldn't be here because they're dead, or they weren't free this weekend. <laughs> One of those. <laughs> quite, that's quite a weight to have on your shoulders. Oh, it's fantastic. We're pub- it's fantastic. I'm bound a publisher-in-residence as well, which is really nice. They've We've also got, got a vlogger-in-residence here. Have they? It's hard to know what they don't have in residence at the Durham Book Festival, to be honest with you. But, and anyway, we, we are ensconced today, it says in my script. We are ensconced today uh, with a very knowledgeable and good-looking audience. Well Again, done, a man. polite ripple of laughter yeah. there. Uh, in the bijou surroundings of Durham's Gala Theatre Studio, and we are delighted to welcome as our guest, little round of applause, please, Sally Bailey. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, Dr Bailey is a teaching and research fellow at the Rothermere American Institute, University of Oxford, and lecturer in English at Lady Margaret Hall, Oxford. She's also a filmmaker and the author of a number of books, including most recently The Private Life of the Diary, A History of the Diary as Art Form. And in fact, you were just doing an event, Sally, weren't you, about this with John? We were, talking about diary and the the importance of a diary for the development of a, of a, a sense of self, a place where... Uh, particularly younger people can try out different selves and uh, how to some degree that's under threat from the instant shareability of uh, photographs and tweets and although the book is uh, is as much a history of brilliant diarists Virginia Woolf, Samuel Pepys, 
even Alan Clark we talked about this morning. Even Alan. And oh, Alan Clark was a brilliant diarist, yeah. if perhaps not a, a man of delightful diary man. style. No, absolutely. We also spoke about the diary as a place where you store away your reading life as well. So uh, Virginia Woolf was one of the heroes of my book um, and in a sense a role model for anyone who wants to be a diarist. She used her diary as a storehouse for her reading. So in a sense it's also her library. Now, normally what we do on Backlisted uh, is that John and I ask one another what we've been reading. Also, I have to add today, there is an normally, empty chair. we'd normally be joined by the author and somnambulist, <laughs> um, Matthew Clayton. But the last time we did one of these in front of an audience, Matthew lost his mind and uh, stripped to the waist and dove into the audience at the end. So he wasn't allowed to come to this one. Um, He's been so, banned. So there won't be any tenuous links other than any we provide ourselves or we ask you for. So again, be ready. But normally, John and I would ask one another uh, about what we've been reading. We're not going to do that today, are we, John? No, we're going to ask you what you've been reading. To what end? I'm not sure, but we will. Uh, it'd, be it'd be fascinating to know what, uh, what people coming to the Durham Book Festival have been reading and whether that chimes with any of the stuff that we've, been, that we've been looking at, which is, in Andy's case, more than is almost humanly possible, <laughs> and in my case, much more humanly possible. So we've got a mic. Um, a roving mic. roving mic. If, you, if you've been reading something that you feel you want to tell us about, please just put your hand up. I've been reading, uh, and it, I mention it because it, uh, you mentioned the Gordon Byrne Prize last night. And I was reading uh, the winner, winning book, uh, David Soleil's um, All That Man Is. And uh, it's also on the Booker list, uh, shortlist. And I would thoroughly recommend it to anyone here. It's made up of nine um, connected stories in some ways, connected in theme, about different men at different ages and, uh, and the frailty and, and, uh, and issues that we all have. And, uh, and I think it was said best by one of the judges that he recognised himself horribly in most of them, um, even though even one minute a guy was 72, which was 20 years' time for the, for the judge until he reached that age. But it, I thoroughly recommend it. Yes, it, was, uh, it, it stood out, actually. That the, and the themes that he was saying had kind of history had overtaken Brexit and, and a migration crisis were not things that were perhaps current when he'd started writing the book, but it's become... It's become more relevant uh, uh, and poignant as, as time has gone on, which is which is fascinating. It was, I mean, it's that it's a, impossibly just on the Gordon Byrne Prize. It seems to me of all the prize shortlists I can think of, it's the, it's the one that is it's almost impossible to imagine how you can come up with a winner because the, yeah. the, the 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 range of experience that's encompassed by it just seems so. The thing remarkable. that Anthony uh, of Anthony and the Johnsons said when when he won the Mercury. He said, "How this is like choosing a prize between a peach and a table, and a car and an apple. Yeah, you know, they, or, or something like that." I did think while we were sitting there listening to some amazing readings last night. Incredible, yeah. It's very difficult. I tell you what, with the um, David, is it Sasley? Shaloy, Shaloy, I think. Do you ever have that thing of that when the book a long list came out a few months ago? Several people recommended that one to me, and I didn't read it quickly. And now it's on the shortlist, and it's won this prize. I'm already thinking, oh, I can't. Yeah. Oh, which is unfair. I'm not, so I don't say that proudly, but I know how wanting to read something works. And sometimes you, either, you miss a moment. Like, you, if you get it... Like, I read the... We were talking about The Sellout by Paul Beattie. Yeah. Which is also, which is also on the Booker shortlist. Yeah. I, I, I read that a, a couple of months ago, 
almost as an unknown quantity. And the fact that and it was talk, an unknown quantity... you talked quantity, about it on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting because I had a bit of one of those, should I or shouldn't I? Uh, and then I thought you'd said, you'd used a word, well, you'd used two words, which was that you'd said it was quite hard going. And, uh, and you said it was great, but it was... It, it was, is and great, I, and but I, it is hard going. I took a, a perhaps the, a, an easier option, which I'm not going to talk about because I want to talk about... is a, is an, a book which I guarantee will be become a, a prize winner and a classic, which is um, The Underground Railway by Colson White. Underground Railroad. Road, sorry. Underground Railroad, yeah. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about it on the next podcast, we are, aren't we? Because yeah. we both read that. Yeah. So. yeah, has anybody else been reading anything? Yes! Yes! Um, do, say your, do say your name. Uh, we, that was David Roach, the last question. I can, I can Thank happily vouchsafe. Hel- hello, uh, I'm Ben Myers. Yeah, I'd like to recommend a book called The Glue Ponies by a writer called Chris Wilson. I've just read it. It's come out on Tangerine Press, who are a small publisher based in uh, Tooting, South London, run by a chap called Michael Curran, who's actually a carpenter, and he's become a bookmaker, like, literally makes the books as, as a craft. And he's published um, James Kelman recently, Billy Childish. He makes beautiful books, which sell out straight away, sometimes £50, £7,500 in addition. But yeah, The Glue Ponies is a collection of stories by a guy from Newcastle, Chris Wilson, who moved to America when he was young and got a terrible heroin habit and went into a life of petty crime and ended up in San Quentin prison for years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just looking at me like the, no, uh, just where's, where's the funny bit? It's the feel good hit of the year. Real uplifting read, but no, it's a, <laughs> it's a lot of it's short stories. Yeah. Basically, he came out of San Quentin prison, moved back to England, went to Chelsea Art School, got a first in art, and is now a painter. But he's also a brilliant writer, and Amazing. the really dark, hard hitting short it's stories. Great, great title. The glue the, the, yeah. I've written it on the back of my hand. Well, it's actually, I, I can't see what's on your hand from here, but it's ponies, P O N Y S, instead of I E S. Just uh, That's pedantic. wrong. I've got that wrong now. I've written yeah. something wrong on the back of my hand. <laughs> but yeah, it's a very short story, it's very hard hitting, very bleak. The, the standout story, and I won't get into it, but it, it involves a sort of very large black transsexual and a, and a, a white Aryan Nazi and an encounter in a hotel room with um, a lot of methamphetamine. I, I am crazy for that yeah, genre. So I love I heard, that I know, genre. I know, well, we had a drink last night in Durham, didn't we? So <laughs> we and did. I just saw how it went. Um, so I know that's your thing. So yeah, the glue ponies <laughs> by Chris Wilson. We're, and do you Tangerine think, do, do you think um, Tangerine Press have got any copies left? Yeah, yeah, I think Excellent. so. Yeah, and Chris Wilson's doing readings and events at the moment. Fabulous. He's a really interesting, engaging guy with a hybrid accent that's part Geordie, Part San Quentin prison, I'm, I'm, part I'm, so, so, I'm so there for the, yeah. for, for the. He lives in South London. So Ben, you've passed the audition. Congratulations! Thank you, <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, has anybody has anybody else been reading anything they'd like to tell us about? Yep. Yes. Ah, go on. Hello, I'm one of your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Hello. Thanks for coming. <laughs> and um, a book that I've been reading was inspired by. The tweets coming from you and Andrew Mail about Virago Press and oh, the kind yeah, of right. um, early 1980s editions. And I went into a bookshop in Pickering and they had hundreds of them uh, on a shelf. And I didn't know which one to pick. So I just randomly picked one out by Gisela Elsner. And it's called Offside. And it's set in Munich. 
and it's about suburbia and it, she's a kind of stifled character taking tranquilizers all day and she ends up having risky sex and it, it's it's a carry on um a wonderful book in many ways it's very german yeah. in the style mm-hmm. so there are virtually no paragraph when's, breaks when's <laughs> is, it, is it translated from the german yes yeah. and when's it when does it date from i think it's 1982 Okay. Um, and have you it's, heard of it? Have either book? of you heard of it? No, 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 no. I haven't heard of it. At my event that I just did here at um, Durham, uh, there was a. I was talking a bit about Hotel du Lac by Anita Bruckner, mm. and I was saying that Hotel du Lac by Anita Bruckner beat J.G. Ballard's The Empire of the Sun to the Booker to Prize. Booker. And last week yeah. I read The Empire of the Sun for the Empire of the Sun for the first time. It was all right, but Hotel du Lac was much better. <laughs> and a, a man in the audience uh, jeered. And, uh, and disagreed. Mm. And I said to him, should we take this outside, UKIP style, so we can, so we can brawl over who was better, Anita Bruckner or J.G. Uh, uh, Ballard? We, but di- I, I can understand that, I believe that when Anita Bruckner won for Hotel mm. du Lac, that there was a lot of ill feeling yeah. because yeah. people felt Ballard had, it was, had written his most important mm, book and it, should be acknowledged for it. If I'm not mistaken, it was 87, wasn't it? 84. Eight, uh, it's what, 84? 84. It's 84, yeah. 84 yeah. right. It's the time of the miners' strike, isn't it, in England? The yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's that's a very right. quiet book, though. I mean, it's so quiet, and I think people sometimes have a problem with quiet books, and it's a book about yeah. a writer having a crisis and, and going to Europe in order to sort it out. I, as listeners to this podcast will know, Basically, we're changing the name of this podcast to <laughs> Bruckner Listed. <laughs> <laughs> and it will be a non-stopping going into uh, Anita Bruckner. Um, yeah, well, the perfection of, you know, I, somebody was saying when she writes the same book every time, and I said, well, surely that's kind of like mm. bark variations. I mean, it's, it may be, it, they may be similar, but they're so, they're so exquisite and perfect. Yeah. In, and, yeah. And, yeah. It's like a tiny, tiny... Um, drop of Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain which is also about yes, being, yes, going yes. to the mountains yes, and yes. recomposing yourself and um, it's sort of it's a modest touch at, at that and I think she pulls it off. The book chat will continue on the other side of this message. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings, and voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay. We're here to talk about 
Stevie Smith and her third and final novel, The Holiday. Um, before we talk about uh, the novel and we, before we talk to Sally about it, we did think it was probably worth mm. having Stevie with us here in some capacity because she was so extraordinary and so wonderful. So we have a few... And um, a brilliant performer, mm. really amazing performer. We have a few recordings of her uh, reading her poetry, uh, which we're going to play at various points. And so we're going to start with her most famous poem, Not Waving, But Drowning. Nobody heard him, the dead man, but still he lay moaning. I was much further out than you thought, and not waving, but drowning. Poor chap, he always loved larking, and now he's dead. It must have been too cold for him, his heart gave way, they said. Oh, no, 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 it was too cold always. Still the dead one lay moaning. I was much too far out all my life, and not waving, but drowning. It's remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. Um, what is that accent? It's sort of. It, is it kind of? Is it sort of? Sort of London. I think it's London helium. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's definitely on helium or something, isn't it is she? It is incredible. Yeah. She's on gin and helium. Gin the and perfect, helium. Yes. The perfect combination. So we're going to talk about um, the holiday, which is Stevie Smith's third novel. Sally, can you tell us a bit about? Um, I will do what we do on back. We're going to do, which is, I'll do the, do you know the blurb. Should we do the Let's blurb? do the blurb first. Yeah, we normally blurb. read the blurb of the books on Backlisted. Um, we all just agreed before we started doing this that The Holiday is one of the most mm. challenging books mm. that we've done on the podcast. And therefore, it's probably good to tell you the plot or at least <laughs> the, the basis of what there is of the plot. There is now. no plot. <laughs> <laughs> now. So I'm just going to read uh, my, I have an early 90s Virago edition here. We've got, um, lots of Virago, and we've got lots of Virago editions here, haven't we? Um, it has a quote from Stevie Smith describing the book, to start with, where she said, I won't do the voice because she does it much better. <laughs> Beautiful, richly melancholy like those hot summer days when it is so full of that calm before the autumn, it quite ravishes me. When I read it, the tears stream down my face. Um, that's her blurbing her own book. That's pretty good. <laughs> Best known for her poetry, Stevie Smith wrote only three novels, of which Novel on Yellow Paper is perhaps the most famous. But The Holiday, as she testifies above, was her favourite. Celia works at the Ministry in the post-war England of 1949 and lives in a London suburb with her beloved aunt. Witty, fragile, quixotic, Celia is preoccupied with love for her friends, her colleagues, her relations, and especially for her adored cousin, Casmilius, with whom she goes on holiday to visit Uncle Heber, the vicar. Here they talk endlessly, argue, eat, tell stories, love and hate, moments of wild humour alternating with waves of melancholy as Celia ponders obsessively on the inevitable pain of love. In everything she wrote, Stevie Smith's poetic special eye captured the paradox of pain in all human affections, nowhere more so than in this wry, strongly autobiographical tale. I think that's a good blurb. It's a, good it's a blurb. very good blurb. It's a very good blurb. I mean, it is, it is just, again, I had not read any Stevie Smith. I'd read some uh, po poems that had been anthologised. So I had very... And I, we try and do with the podcast is I always try and be the guinea pig and go into the 
go into a book with as few preconceptions. I tend not to read the introductions, tend not to read any of the stuff around it, and just try and encounter the text. And it is as disorienting, I think, as maybe first picking up Light in August by William Faulkner. I mean, this is not a book that immediately gives it gives itself away. It's very, very, um, it's very intense. Mm. It takes you a while to get used to the, the fact that she doesn't use any, her punct she punctuates in a very, in a very loose way. I mean, you, you, you just have to, the flow of the, of, of the voice is there, the, di the reported dialogue, you have to concentrate quite hard to, but when you, when you sort of settle into the rhythm of the book, it is really remarkable. I mean, and so, again, uh, for a book that was written in, I mean, it had a difficult publishing history, didn't it? It, it was, yeah, it's it written was, during the Second World War, mm, but it's yeah. not published until nearly five until years 1949. Until 1949. Yeah. Sally, where did you first um, encounter this book? So I first encountered this as a late teenager, in fact, um, sixth form college, um, where I had a teacher who had, was having a big rash on Stevie Smith. And so the poetry first and then the novels. Um, so as a teenager, and I think... As a first reader of Smith, and is quite right, this is a difficult novel because it doesn't have a plot. But what it does invite you into is a series of swimming conversations. You, you swim around these conversations as though you were in a kind of eddy or whirlpool. You're not quite sure where you're going next. Mm. It invites you into quite a closed world of cousins, her cousins, right, mm -hmm. um, and of classical friendship. And you're trying to work out where the lines of affection are between one person and another. Yeah. So you're radically and wildly and unsettlingly anxious about who you are with <laughs> yes. and who they are in relation to you. Yeah, who's, who's yeah. going out with who? Who fancies who yeah. or who likes who? And I think it captures wonderfully... Or getting all of off that, with, she uses that. Getting off with. Getting off with, yeah. That sort of playground fear of who's my friend and who hates me and who likes me and who loves me. And I think she's brilliant on that instinctive fear of um, affection and then lack of affection. I think Celia in the book is, a, is a, an unreliable narrator, but not in the terms that we would normally understand that phrase. Mm -hmm. I think she's telling the truth. I think she's compelled to tell the truth. But she's unreliable because of the way, how her yes. moods swing. Yes. And she's yes. totally true yes. to whatever mood might yes. be passing through her yes. at the moment, Absolutely. in the moment of telling you about it Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. It's really kind of yeah. um, fearless mm. and reckless. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, I, mm. I know that um, another author we talked about on Backlisted um, quite often, but Novel on Yellow Paper mm. was a great favourite mm. of Jean Reese's. Uh -huh. mm. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. indeed it has that There's same kind definite. of willingness yes. to throw yourself onto the tracks yes. emotionally and yes. artistically yes. and it's, seeing what happens it, you know? it's, it's, the, it's that extraordinary ability to go within a, a single paragraph mm. and we'll, we'll read some bits out but mm. from what seems like artless almost faux naive, naivety mm. to really profound insights mm. into psychology and, and, and history. I mean, mm. the book is full of references to, there's an early period that some of the cousins have shared in India together. So the, the question of, of, of the future of India is, 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 is endlessly mm. debated. The ennui mm. of, of the, the post-war years, they're, they're all working as cryptographers and, in, and secretaries in, in government ministries. It has a connection in, in, in some ways emotionally to the, that sort of sense of, um, that you had in the, the Balchan 
novel, mm -hmm. uh, Darkness Falls from Air. There's a, there's a definite sense of it being very located in a, in a, in a specific moment. But um, as we'll go on to discuss, I think, it also becomes remarkably prescient and relevant to where we find ourselves today. You know? Sally, have you got a bit that you yes, could... Do you absolutely. want to no, 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 absolutely. be bold enough to read? I am definitely bold enough oh, to read. Great. As I confessed earlier in my, in my talk, I was the school narrator. <laughs> <laughs> never, never, never Joseph or Mary. <laughs> nor an angel, nor a donkey, nor a palm tree. So, um, and just to pick up on con the contemporaneousness of this novel, it is difficult because in some sense it's not a novel at all. It's a series of swirling ideas. It's a series of conversations. It's very classical. It's a symposium. But there is this fixation with the mood of England and with um, an English kind of melancholy and sadness. Um, England that gives up on itself. Ringing any bells? Yeah. Um, England that gives up on itself. And, and the... The idea of Englishness is then attached to family history and, as I've already said, to lines of affection. England's relationship to Germany, she is being written during the Second World War, but actually isn't published until 49. so there's a strange relationship between pre-war, middle of war and post-war. We're never quite sure where we are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so history is very slippery and unknown. English relations to, to Germany um, is one of the key um, in nation, international national relationships of the book and I want to read a little bit from the beginning um, where Celia is um, in conversation with her cousin Kaz um, via the English and the English and Germans Kaz went on to say that the Germans in their careful way had always made a great study of the English and might almost be said to graduate in it but sure enough, though they might say the English race was biological and how that the English sat in front of their damned smoky fires just staring into them and not doing a thing about the draft under the door, <laughs> just lounging and suffering, like you, Celia, were bound to trip up as with the fake prisoner of war letters they shot down over England with the bombs so that number four, Acacia Grove, a Bermondsey, might be laid flat. But floating down upon the owner, maybe fathom deep in rubble, would be this fake letter from Harry Boy to say how fine the Germans were being to him in his Starlog and what decent chaps they were and how much they loved the English, etc. Only, of course, they couldn't know. They got it wrong. The poor Germans couldn't know, for they all read his letters. That boy Harry never said darling to his mum, and had never so much as mentioned the Germans one way or the other, not during the whole long years he was in camp, and how he always said in every letter, least said, soonest mended. <laughs> so all the way from dear mum and dad to all the best Harry, there was nothing in Harry's letters, the most college-raised chap in Deutschland, not by industry nor cunning, could lay his hand to for a true twist Propaganda pill. Amazing. You've got the gig. <laughs> <laughs> that was brilliant, actually. What's so interesting is the difference between Stevie Smith's poetry, mm. which is remarkably um, tight in terms of and, its use of words and direct. And the fiction in terms of how it uses speech in particular. I found this lovely thing that Rachel Cook, our former guest on the podcast, Rachel Cook, said 
about the voice that Stevie Smith uses in this book and in all her novels. She says it has irony, wit, a slight edge of malice, <laughs> and the feeling that everyday speech, in all its repetitive clumsiness, has been brought magically close to poetry. Yeah. But also that Stevie manages to put poetry into very odd places and Absolutely. very strange speech. I think it was one of the people at Chapman and Hall, or editor at Chapman Hall, complained that the book was mostly poetry. I mean, there is a lot of poetry in it, but it's... I think it's, it's more... Poetry clippings. Yeah, it, it, it's also full of quite a lot of Latin, quite a bit of yes. German and French. I mean, there is a sort of uh, stream of consciousness uh, mm -hmm. sort of feel to the, to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, the, I think the relationship with Germany is, is, is interesting. There's also, there's also a thinly-veiled portrait of Orwell in there, the mm -hmm. character of Basil, mm -hmm. who she was mm -hmm. close to Orwell, Stevie Smith. There were rumours that they had an affair, but I don't think they were ever mm -hmm. a bit like the rumours of her lesbian affair. It's n none of these mm -hmm. things are very clear. I mean, her... It is a very, very biographical novel, but I, I like the bit also that the beginning, the coming sense of America and consumerism that is beginning to, to sort of affect. There's this, I think, wonderful passage from Basil, who, who, um, he, who he said that America would be the ruin of the moral order. He said that the more gadgets women had and the more they thought about their faces and their figures, the less they wanted to have children. He said that he happened to see an article in an American woman's magazine about scanty panties. He said women who thought about scanty panties never had a comfortable fire burning in the fireplace, or a baby in the house, or a dog, or a cat, or a parrot, or a canary, I said. <laughs> or a canary, went on Basil. Um, that's, it's a very good... You get a very good sense from that of, of going from this, you know, kind of... Or a, oratorial kind of high oratory and then suddenly she brings it down with a, with, a, with a joke. I just want to read, I just want to say something Sally you were saying how you found this book as a, a teenager Yes. I, it's moody right like a teenager, it's a very moody book <laughs> Yes. I read um, Novel on Yellow Paper for the first time uh, a year ago um, and I just want to read the opening paragraph of Novel on Yellow Paper because I think the opening paragraph of Novel on Yellow Paper and this is a book where she was she wanted to get her poems published yeah. and the publisher as they still do said go and write a novel mm. so she did in six weeks I'm going to read you the beginning but before I read you the beginning I just want to tell you the context in which I read it um, I just completed a month long reading of Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace <laughs> and I had found reading Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace uh, to be often enjoyable, often frustrating, very male, very maximalist, no thought unexpressed <laughs> for 1,129 pages or something. Mm. But I completed it, I finished reading it, I th and, and then I was visiting a friend of mine called Neil, who is here today, hello Neil, and we went to a bookshop and spontaneously, I saw a lovely little Penguin Modern Classics copy of Novel on Yellow Paper. I opened it up and I read these words and I thought, I felt like a great David Foster Wallace-shaped weight lifted from my shoulders, <laughs> right? Here we go. This is the beginning of Novel on Yellow Paper. Beginning this book, not as they say book in our trade, they mean magazine. Beginning this book, I should like to say, if I may, 
Uh, I should like, if I may, that is the way Sophibus writes, I should like then to say goodbye to all my friends, my beautiful and lovely friends, and for why, read on, reader. Read on and work it out for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I think that is the best opening to a novel that I've read for many, many years. And what I think is so... Now I know a bit more about Stevie, so you can probably tell us about this, is that isn't a pose that she's taking there. It's a method. She actually (laughs) shed many friends as a result of publishing this book. Mm -hmm. She was estranged from many people in her life, some, some of them permanently, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And may I just to pick up on what... Thank you very much, Annie, for reading that. Um, in terms of friends and then fans, in 1962, uh, Stevie Smith receives a letter from the august poet Sylvia Plath, who is in her heyday, her young heyday. She's uh, 30, 31 and she writes, she, she writes to Stevie Smith um, as a fan. Um, and before I read the letter to you, which is devastatingly crushing from Smith's side anyway, to young Sylvia. I want to mention a couple of young people who I've been um, honoured to know who have actually taught me about Stevie Smith, and they are my students. One of them is now not a student. He's now a world expert on Stevie Smith. His name is Will May, and he was the recent editor for the new Faber edition an extraordinary achievement. That is a wonderful it's book. It's an amazing book. Um, extraordinary new edition of Stevie Smith's poetry and prose and... Drawings. Drawings, much of which comes from the Tulsa University Library, um, which none of us really have easy access to. So thank you, Will. Thank you, Will May. Um, he also wrote an extraordinary book about Stevie, which brought up Stevie Smith, which brought her back into the limelight a few years ago. And then the, the second student I want to mention, who is also a world expert on Stevie Smith, is Noreen Masood. And if any of you want to have easy access to Smith, she has this most extraordinary blog called Parrots Ate Them All. <laughs> Parrots Ate Them All. Um, and it's from that blog that I'm reading to you now, um, the letter that Plath wrote to Smith, and then Smith's reply. It's Smith's reply I want to read to you now. Dear Sylvia Plath, (laughs) thank you so much for your letter. I was glad to hear from you and glad you enjoyed the Harvard record. I'm afraid I really don't know where you would find a copy of novel on YP now. (laughs) It did go into a Penguins in 1950, I think it was, but that sold out and they did not reprint. When I go downstairs, I camp upstairs most of the time with my aged aunt. She is 90. But when I go upstairs, or is it downstairs, I will look out the address of a man who sometimes manages to track down books for me. (laughs) He lives in this neighbourhood, oddly enough, but is very shy. Just sends the book and the AC, which, after all, is all that one wants. I do hope your novel goes well, and I do hope the move in the new year goes well too, if only as you suggest, so that we can meet sometime. (laughs) I feel awfully lazy most of the time. Even the idea of writing a novel makes me feel rather faint. And as for poetry, I'm a real humbug. Just write it. Sometimes, but practically never, read a word. That makes me feel pretty mean-spirited when poets like you write such nice letters. 
<laughs> Yours ever, Stevie Smith. Oh, it's amazing. I, you know, um, I have to say this. So Sylvia Plath was a big, uh, a great admirer of Stevie Smith. Um, so, of course, was um, Morrissey. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and indeed, it's speculated that the name The Smiths partly comes from his love of Stevie Smith. Um, and her name Stevie came from a jockey. He, yeah. She was named after a jockey. But he says, he says in, in his autobiography, autobiography. <laughs> Penguin Classics. Yeah. <laughs> My senses sharpen at the words of Stevie Smith. She appeared to live like a never opened window. That's not bad, is it? That's pretty good. Pretty not good. bad. Um, when Novel on Yellow Paper was published, uh, it was a sensation, was it not? Mm -hmm. It was a bestseller, well. published in 1936. Um, it made her a celebrity overnight. Uh, somebody wrote to Virginia Woolf saying, you are Stevie Smith and I claim my five pounds. <laughs> or words to that effect, that it was believed that Stevie Smith was a pseudonym and that it was a, a lighter um, version of what Virginia Woolf was trying to do in terms of the revolutionary use of speech and stream of consciousness. And yet, at the same time, the more you read about Stevie Smith, you realise she has this very strange aesthetic that is made up of depression, uh, suburbia, death as a... a yeah. Deliverance yeah, from death, the pain death, of being death alive. Death is always an option yeah, for, 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 for escape and, from. Yeah. And death, death is kind of a leisure option almost. Yeah. You know, it's like we're on holiday. We could do some death. You know, maybe maybe let's. And that's and in the and and there's an extraordinary part of the holiday mm. where she describes. I th I'm going to say I'm not even sure about this. So I'm looking at you quizzically as I say it where she describes a suicide attempt. Mm. Yeah. Yes. It is a yes, suicide yes, yes, attempt, yes, yes. right? Absolutely, but yes. it's But it's delivered... Very. You know, she's, she'll deliver, give you two mm. paragraphs mm. about parrots. Very deadpan, or apes. Or apes, and then say in passing, and I mm. feel tired, and I decide to lie down in the water. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And is saved from drowning. She's saved from drowning, isn't yes, she? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable... Because she, 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 she's just carried away mm. by the stream and mm. is rescued. But there's no struggle. I mean, she's, she's, just, she's just lying, being drift, drifting downstream. And I suppose what she's doing is... I mean, she's drawing us into a dream state. Uh, Smith is a great fan of the reverie, right? The idea that you mm -hmm. can look at, a, look at a fire, you watch the crackling fire, and you, you transport yourself somewhere else. So, in a sense, this book comes out of a dream state. It comes out of... Um, transportation, being moved somewhere else, having gone somewhere else, hence the holiday. The holiday, in a sense, is a metaphor for that dream state. It's very Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. But it's, Alice in Wonderland is very dark, but, you know, the menace here is of, is of real things. It's death um, in a fairy tale sense, and the book ends in a fairy tale mm -hmm. trance, doesn't it? But it's also death caused by war, death caused by empire, death caused by po politics, bad politics. Now, it's a very political book as well. Um, and John and I were discussing this before we came in, the, the way in which it takes on England's relationship to Europe and then to the, to the globe, um, which is strikingly relevant to our current state of affairs. Absolutely. Um, so, I, so I really want to challenge us to, you know, to think about ways in which this book could be read um, as, a, as a comment on England now. Yeah. There's a really kind of um, there's a, a, a passage which strikes me 
as about England, which is, I think it's, it's Kaz, who tends to be even more, the, 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 the cousin in the book, who tends yes. to be even more cynical than her. She's, he, he says, we're not a sophistical people and are saved the dangers that run with sophism. And our education has not yet succeeded in taking away from us the weapons of our strength, mm-hmm. insularity, pride, xenophobia, and good humour. Mm-hmm. That could pretty much be a UKIP shall slogan. I just, <laughs> shall I just say a bit, about, a bit of biographical stuff about yes. Stevie? Because yes. I feel we haven't, I feel we need to do that. So she's born in 1902 and she dies in 1971. Florence Margaret Smith, called Peggy by her family, and as John said, <laughs> picks up a, a bo- and the nickname of Stevie because sh- some boys shout out that she's like a jockey called Steve. Is that right? Yes, yeah, that's I think right. so, yeah. And so her father was a shipping agent. He leaves home when, the, when she's three. Off to sea, he goes off to sea. Off to Valparaiso, love yeah. daddy. And she moves to a suburban house in Avondale Road, Palmer's Green, where she lives for most of the yes. rest of her life with her aunt Madge, uh, played in the film Stevie by the incredible Mona Washbourne. Oh, yes. It was nothing like Aunt Madge in real life. I was reading much to my amusement. Aunt, Aunt, Aunt Madge was formidable. And Stevie's played by Glenda Jackson. Glenda Jackson. Jackson. And the play was revived last year with yeah. Zoe Wanamaker. Absolutely. And so she called her aunt the Lion Aunt. Um, and... When she was five, she develops TB and she's sent to a sanatorium near Broadstairs for three years. Her mother was often ill. Her mother dies when she's 16. Mm-hmm. And it's these elements, death, women, suburbia, that provide inspiration for many of her poems. Um, death as a deliverer from mm-hmm. depression or mm-hmm. illness. She works at Noon's Publishing for 30 years as a secretary to Sir Neville Pearson. And she published seven volumes of poetry in her lifetime, the most famous of which was Not Waving But Drowning in 1957. Three novels, novel on yellow paper, Over the Frontier, 1938, and this one, The Holiday. Mm. And we were talking last night, Sally, she fell out of fashion. Yes. She was very successful in the 1930s. She fell out of fashion in the 1940s and 50s and came to dislike these novels Mm -hmm. because she felt they had fixed her as as a 1930s fad rather than as an author. But then in the 1960s, and I think we have another poem that we could play of a live recording from 1965. In the 1960s, Stevie Smith becomes a celebrity all over again as a live performer. Mm. She, she manages to get onto the 60s poetry gig yeah, circuit, circuit and become one of its, one of its mascots almost. Mm-hmm. Almost in a sort of, I was thinking she reminds me of Ivor Cutler mm-hmm. in a way. She has that brilliant English eccentric, mm-hmm. although he was Scottish, of course, uh, thing going on. Do we have uh, one of those poems now? Here is a happy love poem I wrote. It is called I Remember. It was my bridal night, I remember. An old man of 73, I lay with my young bride in my arms, a girl with TB. It was wartime, and overhead, the Germans were making a particularly heavy raid on Hampstead. (laughs) What rendered the confusion worse, perversely, our bombers had chosen that moment to set out for Germany. Harry, do they ever collide? I do not think it has ever happened, oh, my bride, my bride. 
what a pro. Yeah. <laughs> wait for the laugh, wait for the laugh, wait for the applause. Brilliant. I think just to pick up on what you were uh, saying about her uh, circuit, her her fame on the circuit, she she she's so attached, I think, to the Victorian music hall tradition as well. She's interested in snatches of words, words that float through the air that are partly that are sing song, right? Nursery rhymes and sing song, language that's breaking out into something else altogether, a hum or a tune. Yes. And I think that's why it's so difficult to read. And as I was reading that passage, my diaphragm was contracting and expanding nervously because mm. I felt as though I ought to be breaking out into a song and doing a bit mm. of tra la la mm. around the edge. Um, and in fact, she has got these star lags and the way that she's p- sort of playing with the, 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 the ridges between German and French and Italian, this kind of schoolgirlish relationship to knowing languages. Um, I don't know if anyone else have... I have days where I suddenly speak really bad French because I was sent away when I was young to... Switzerland, and there's something about that early relationship with language. Yeah. And it's a schoolgirl understanding yes. of European languages. And she runs that through nursery rhyme and then the music hall tradition of song, which of course is rude and crude and colloquial. And it's to do with rumour and gossip and hearsay. Have you got another little bit you could read us there from yes, the holiday? And then absolutely. I've got, and then I have a question to ask. Yes, I have. And to my other panel members, so Sally, yes. go. And I'm afraid I'm staying with the idea of the English, if that's yeah. all right. We can take a bit more of the English yep. um, without getting t- too turned off. Um, so they're up there, so they're having, they're, they're talking, they're just, most of the book is a series of conversations. She's still with her cousin Kaz, who she's in love with. They're now, the whiskey's now out. Oh, yeah. Okay, uh, yeah, so, yeah, we're, yeah, yeah. so we're in the whiskey scene. That's the spirit, said Kaz, pass the whiskey. The English law is above the world, I said. It is not to be bought. It is strong, flexible, and impartial. Kaz began to sing. The law is the embodiment of everything that's excellent. It has no kind of spot or flaw. And I, my lords, embody the law. And this new whipping law, this emergency whipping act, they have passed for India. It is this inflammable student material, I said, wringing my hands, for indeed I felt it to be a shameful thing. It was a horrible necessity, I said, pleading with Kaz. Surely, for instance, it is better than shoot the boys. Oh yes, much better, said Kaz, because you can do it several times. It is always such fun. I remember how I used to enjoy it so much at school. We always had this clean, wholesome fun. We derive great pleasure from it, eh, Tiny? Tiny, look away. I think there's a great deal of nonsense talked about this flogging business at public schools, he said. After all, what is it? Nothing. You did not used to think so, said Kaz. That's the spirit, I said. Pass the whiskey. The British will always eventually pass flogging laws because the governing classes are flogged themselves. So much through the public schools. I was flogged twice through Homer, said Kaz, with another (laughs) malicious look in my direction. I agree with Tiny, I said in a desperate manner. Too much is made of it. Some men writers make so much of it as some women writers will always be making of the stress and strain of childbirth. Well, that cannot be so easily removed. <laughs> That's wonderful. So my question to uh, Sally and to you, John, is 
I think these are utterly wonderful novels. Uh, I am so pleased to have read them in the last year or so. I think they are. I hope people listening to this, they're all in print at the moment. You can get them. You don't have to get them on eBay like some of the books we talk about sometimes on Batlisted. You could stop listening to us now. Go and get one of these books, The Holiday or Novel on Yellow Paper. They're wonderful novels. Was she a wonderful novelist? (laughs) Um, What a really interesting... Uh, distinction to make. I'd say she's an anti-novelist, actually. Yeah. I think she's an anti-novelist, like Herman Melville's Moby Dick, which is a whaling manual, mm-hmm. actually, in its basic form. It's a whaling manual. Um, and I don't know how we each of us felt reading this, but I was a schoolgirl again, looking up words and looking up things. So, so the, the part that I didn't just read, which carries on, we have the Battle of Thermopylae, which is one of the wars, the big Persian-Spartan war in the 5th century BC. But there I was. I know this, but I was looking it up, just in case I get it wrong. Mm. And there's something about this book and knowledge and um, the, the way in which she brings us into snippets of, uh, and, and, uh, snippets and fragments of knowledge... Which, yeah. which are running around inside the pages of this novel, uh, as obviously they were running around inside her head. Um, and you can't really read a paragraph without having to look something up, because it's mm. full of illusion, isn't it? And it's full of remnants of learning. It, it, <clears throat> it's a really good question, and I, I think it is exactly that. Uh, there's a very snooty essay mm. of, um, of T.S. Eliot, who did a good line in snooty essays, um, uh, about William Blake, and he 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 basically patronises Blake by saying, you know, he kind of makes rather rather interesting furniture out of the you know the odd bits and pieces of. Mm-hmm. He basically he basically accuses Blake of not having proper classical learning, and it which is as it turns out not true, um, but. There is a sense in which Stevie Smith is, 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 a, is an English writer mm-hmm. in the way that Blake is an English writer. She stands outside mm-hmm. any obvious tradition. Um, she's, she, she has made this incredibly deceptively... I, I think she had a persona, as you can mm-hmm. hear from the voice, of, of being somebody who was kind of amusing and a bit eccentric and a bit mad and high-low. And, but the, the novels are so... I mean, there's so much in The Holiday. I mean, there's so much compacted in there, so much thinking and talking, and, and it kind of hangs together. But you can't say that she's like, like I say, you know, maybe someone as, as, uh, as kind of... I mean, she's, it's, you know, you can't really say she's like Virginia Woolf, I don't no, think. No, she's definitely I, not like Virginia Woolf. For me, I found that I, the little thing I was reading from the beginning of Novel on Yellow Paper read on, read read on and work it out for yourself. Mm -hmm. That, for me, is what I loved about reading these books. Mm -hmm. I think they're incredibly... The sense of freedom within them and that they are incredibly freeing to read because Mm -hmm. they they are drawing on certain traditions, but they are not the traditions or the aesthetic of a novelist, Mm -hmm. of a trading novelist. Mm -hmm. They are someone who is attempting to get down on paper what's in their head in a, in a, in a hierarchy of meaning for them, which allows you and, to wander around to- it. Totally original. Can I re- read one really quick passage? Yes, which we, this, this, is, yeah. this is Kaz again. And this is, this is the relationship between Kaz and Celia, the way she... I mean, Kaz is kind of... This is very Seneca, you know, this is Greek philosophy. 
Life is like a railway station, said Kaz. <laughs> the train of birth brings us in, the train of death will carry us away, and meanwhile we're cooling our heels upon the platform and waiting for the connection and stamping up and down the platform and passing the time of day with the other people who are also waiting. Which is quite good, but this is what she does. Yes, that is how it is. Of course, for everybody, it is not like this. For firmer types, it is different. For firmer types. For firmer types. That's how, pure... that, you know that's how the play and the film of Stevie by Hugh Whitemore, that's how mm. it starts, yeah. with that exact um, train mm. image. Mm. Um, so, and as uh, the train is now pulling out of the station, Matt <laughs> informs me. Um, so we have to wind up, I'm afraid. Great. Well, I think that's all we have time for. Uh, thanks to Sally, to our producer Matt Hall, to our sponsors Unbound, but thanks most of all to our audience here at the Gala Theatre Studio at the Durham Book Festival. Thank you. <laughs> thanks very much, everyone. I think, I think Stevie Smith would have been appalled by what's happening. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> to Paul, I'm, I'm sure she My would. My singing, especially. Oh, no, that was so good. you can get in touch with us on uh, uh, @backlistedpod on Twitter, Facebook, uh, BacklistedPod, uh, our page on Unbound site, which is unbound.co.uk forward slash backlisted. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. <laughs> good night from me. Good night from me. Good night from Stevie. <laughs> <laughs> If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.